You're listening to As in Heaven, a podcast about Orlando, faith, and how we as Christians can be more effectively on mission in our city and beyond. Our aim is to highlight local leaders who are doing incredible things to see God's will be done in Orlando as it is in heaven. Our guest on this episode is Michael Aitchison. Mike is the senior pastor and planter of Christ United Fellowship and is deeply involved in ministering to downtown Orlando. He tells us how he went from playing football at the University of Kentucky to planting churches in Central Florida and gives us a glimpse of the joys and struggles of starting a church from scratch. He unpacks the story of Division Street in Orlando and some of the historic racial tensions here in the city and what it means to shepherd a diverse congregation as a local pastor. Mike is just a lovely guy and we were honored to have him on the podcast. As always, Jim Davis and Justin Holcomb are your hosts. I'm Matt, the producer. And without further ado, please enjoy this episode of As in Heaven with Mike Aitchison. Welcome to As in Heaven. We are excited to have our good friend Mike Aitchison here with us today. Mike is the planter and pastor of Christ United Fellowship Church uh, down in my old stomping ground at Lake Como Elementary, right near downtown. You uh, you grew up in South Florida, played football in Kentucky. That sounds like a real culture shock going from South Florida to Kentucky. Yes, um, and you're also now a family life speaker. In addition to, I know a whole lot of other things that you do. Um, <laughs> so thank you for taking the time and your busy schedule and joining us here. Well, brother, this is an absolute privilege and honor to be sharing in this time with you all. I'm so grateful for you guys. Angela and I, when we uh, worked with Campus Crusade at Mississippi State, we had a dinner in the house with five football friends who came over, and she made spaghetti for 30, mm. and we ran out. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. What's the hardest you've—I mean, I imagine SEC football is like the pinnacle of football— you had to have some serious hits along the way. Yeah, there, there were a few moments. I, I mean, I, I remember playing Florida and hitting, uh, was it, I'm trying to remember if it was Brandon, it wasn't Brandon Spikes. Uh, I have to look this guy up again, but he was one of their uh, interior linebackers. And I remember us, I think we we're running a power play or something, which is a guard pulls and you hit the linebacker and you hopefully open a hole for the running back. And I had a bruise on the front of my forehead for a couple weeks just from that impact alone. Now, now, it didn't take me out of the game, but that just was a a normal exchange between a guard, uh, an offensive lineman and a linebacker. And then there were times where, you know, I was on the on the not winning end of things. I've I've been blindsided. I've been, you know, lifted off the ground. When you play football in the trenches, anything can happen to you. So. All right, well, there's no easy segue there to church planting, but yes. I really want no, to... No, that sounds exactly <laughs> like a segue. <laughs> just like church planting. <laughs> Under the pile. Uh, so, the kind of person that would, on purpose, do church planting is like a That's a, a really good point. <laughs> like there, the disposition, something about your personality. The, dis, the disposition mm. we just heard there, or whatever word I was trying to say, disposition, is you need that for the grit and perseverance, I'm guessing. So I don't... I don't all my friends are church planners and I hang out with a bunch of them. I don't have the guts mm. to be a church planner. Mm. So, yeah, I don't know if you saw <laughs> Mike po- uh, posted on Facebook. Was it this week or last week? <laughs> it was, uh, it, you know, the, the baby Yoda, old Yoda meme that's going on. We're big Mandalorian fans. And, and so baby Yoda. And I, and I think the quote was something like, I want to be a church planter. And then you have this 800 year old Yoda next to him and says, uh, welcome to our one year anniversary. <laughs> so I have to give credit to Cam Triggs, okay. who is also a church planter here in Orlando that, posted that and I thought as soon as I read that I just fell out in my house laughing I said this I mean this is absolutely the truth and I had posted something a couple years ago that I came across it was a meme saying uh, who says ministry is stressful I'm 35 and I feel great and of course this guy it probably he looks like he's 80 80 and 100 I had a full head of hair when I set out to plant Christ United Fellowship, okay? And I had dreads before that. Um, Church planting is difficult. I think of what Paul says in Acts 14, through many tribulations, we must see the kingdom of God. Of course, 
you know, if you're looking for the the prototypical church planter apart from Jesus, it's the Apostle Paul. And I think of all the struggles that he faced. That he talks about the sufferings being, you know, the, the 40 minus one twice, the being shipwrecked, the being lowered through houses, beaten as dead, potentially, uh, depending on how you understand that scripture. Uh, snake people, bites. Yeah, snake bites, <laughs> people falling asleep on his 12 hour sermons. Uh, but anyway, so. <laughs> Church planting is difficult, but when you think about what's going on, you're establishing a kingdom outpost. You're establishing a base, a center for the saints to come and worship the true and living God, be charged and be deployed to go do mission until Jesus comes back. And the enemy, quite honestly, does not like that. Okay. He he knows that he's fighting a losing battle and he's like that, that uh, he's like that opposition that's going down, firing with everything that they've got, because they know that the end, uh, low their doom is sure. They they know that it's sure. And so for us, there are a lot of parallels. When I went to the University of Kentucky, we were actually, my class was the first class to receive a penalty for the previous regime's indiscretions. So we were mm. on probation. Uh, typically, you got 25 scholarships. Our class came in with 16. One of the guys got a state scholarship, so he donated it to the university to bring in another recipient. And of that class, I think about four or five of us in that actual scholarship class remained. Those are some of the toughest years of my life. Also, some of the most formative years of my life spiritually. We were being maligned in the newspapers. We were being castigated venomously on campus. I remember walking in the class one day. And the uh, professor said, well, how was everyone's weekend? And this girl just blurted out, well, good, unless you're a UK football fan, right next to me. And I looked at her like, and he said, now, now, that's to be expected. So I was like, you're just going to encourage people just destroying us like this. All right. Uh, talk about support. Well, we persevered through that. A lot more went into that. And we got the program we left the program in better shape than we found it. And that was our goal, any of those guys that remained. And I think back to some of the hardest times in my life, mentally, physically, and spiritually. And they happened there in college. Okay, we were trying to, in essence, create something, if you will, that didn't exist. We were trying to get a, a winning program, resurrect a, a program from death. And all of those things transferred right into church planting. I, I was amazed to see how I responded under hardship with many things. Now, of course, th there's some unique spiritual experiences when you're doing ministry work. Um, I do believe that we have an enemy that uh, does not want to see God's will be done, and he tries everything he can. So th there, there was some heightened spiritual warfare throughout this process, and even to this day. And you, know, you think about having to start something from the ground up. And we started our church from scratch. We were a parachute plant. We had resources from uh, the Florida Church Planting Network, various PCA churches, and some individual partners from outside of Florida. And that helped us get started. And during that time, we were on the itinerant circuit, if you will. And I got sick as a dog, the night before I was set to preach at St. Paul's Presbyterian, one of our uh, sister churches. And I thought I was not going to be able to preach. And I looked at Lucy in the middle of the night and I said, I don't think I can preach tomorrow. I may very well just kill over in the pulpit. And the Lord gave me relief. We got to St. Paul's that morning yeah. and they laid hands on me and then they gave me a robe. Okay, now I'm, for those of you who can't see me on this podcast, I'm six, almost six, three about 255 pounds, 250 on a good day. And the robe stopped just <laughs> short of my elbow. And, I, and so, so as I, <laughs> it basically looked like a, a, a baby tee on me. A really tight dress. <laughs> <laughs> Pastor Mike's dressing all skimpy for us. I think it was tight, son. But uh, <laughs> yes, it was. Then I went and purchased my own after that. But what happened after that was amazing. This woman who's been here in Central Florida for over 30 years, well-respected, woman named Lori Pedanti, 
came up to me and gave me one of the most encouraging words ever. And of course, I'm just all over the place. You know, after you preach, your mind is just spinning. The phone rings, not a week or two later. Ed McDougall says, there's a couple that wants to meet with you. Okay. This lady heard you preach, Lori Pedanti, at the church and wants to talk about her home being the base for the church plant. I said, Lord, have wow. mercy. Uh, that's, you know, in our space, we call that parades of providence. <laughs> now, it's very likely that Lori and I would have never met yep. had I not preached that morning. Yep. And wow. so that is, those are, those are very clear, distinct moments where God showed up in the life of our plant. So when was Christ United Fellowship formally started? Yeah, so that was 2013 uh, or 12 when we met uh, and, or 13, and we hit the field in 2014. So I had to raise uh, support, I had to raise finances, seed money, I had to gather people. So those are the basic things. There's a whole lot of other things that have to happen in order to start a church. Uh, it's funny because I talk to people and they say, well, how long have you been around? And I said, well, we've been open for public worship for about five years, but it's been about a nine year journey. Now, people who start businesses and people who have started churches before, whether they're the minister or the lay, a lay leader, understand exactly what I'm talking. And then there's always that. Mm-hmm. That's silent. We just look at each other. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> if people only knew what went on behind the scenes to get to this point. So you would think that Orlando is this this Mecca. Uh, it's it's kind of a Jerusalem, if you will, a theological center of sorts. But when you look at the statistics, that reality is not borne out. We are, yeah. according to some um, resources, 86% unchurched. We're among the top 10 least church cities in the U.S. We ranked 66 among the least biblically minded cities in the U.S. when we first started, Providence, Rhode Island being 100, which is the worst. Okay. And so I, I thought, wow, this is fascinating with the, the notable churches we have here. And we also have a couple of notable mega churches, mm-hmm. but it, it's not a reflection of the overall spirituality of the city. I think it's a reflection of the potential that we have for this to be a great city for God's uh, purposes. And already we've seen, you know, uh, shades of that already bursting into um, reality. So there's that complicated side. So it's sort of this weird, like, man, what is going on here? But Orlando is kind of, in my opinion, and, and what I've discerned from other people who grew up here, an adolescent city. It's a place that is just ripe for, an identity of sorts. There are a lot of different ideologies competing for Orlando's attention. Okay, we we have a lot of movements that are good and bad that are taking place in our city. And I think when you look at also all the development that's happening, I'm I'm every time I hear this number, it changes. At one point I heard we had 55 million people come through our city last year. Then I heard 60s. And then recently I heard, well, actually, we had 77 million people come through our city. I have heard all the way from 1,000 to 1,700 people are moving to Orlando per week. And I talked to a guy who's a developer here recently, and he said, for the next 10 years, all indicators are pointing that in the direction that this will continue. And so you look at all the buildings that are popping up, the high rises, you look at what's happening downtown with Valencia, with UCF, with uh, OCPS, uh, the Orange County Public Schools, and some amazing things are happening. And you look at all the westward development. I mean, you look at uh, Fashion Square Mall. Somebody is, is, is going to buy that, tear it down and build a whole new city center. So, I mean, I look at this and, and um, I kind of I kind of have a great gaspy moment. Like Orlando is just filled with so much promise for glory and all this stuff. And, but, but that means that it, it's filled with promise for brokenness as well. And so here goes an opportunity for the church mm. to get ahead of some of the things that already have been taking root in our city. Uh, you know, I, I know we've got a division street here in Orlando and there's a history behind that. 
I've gone through some groups like Orlando Together that was started by um, Ben Hoyer and and um, a friend of mine, Nikki, who was uh, leading the cohorts. And we're learning that there's a history of brokenness and racial tension, socioeconomic disparity and injustice that has kind of laid beneath the surface of our city. Can you can you uh, give as much time as you want? I mean, mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be too long, but be as long as you want. Some of that history on Division Street. Yeah, well, it's it, it clearly delineates the Paramore from or the, the east side of I four, west side of I four from the east side. At once upon a time, Paramore area was a thriving district of black professionals, lawyers, doctors, you name it. Okay, um, the construction of I four impaired that. Progress and human flourishing. Well, and I mean, drill down on this because mm-hmm. I four wasn't originally designed to go where it where it did. Yeah, there, there's, there's I, okay. And to be fair, mm-hmm. I've heard this my whole life. I've never seen the original plan, so I, I want to provide that caveat. But I've always heard that it was supposed to go through like the Winter Park area, mm-hmm. and and there are a lot of people who who had power and did not want that to happen. So that's where you get like the Fairbanks curve. That hard curve, that's and, correct. And it goes right through the poorest area of town. Mm-hmm. And then the whole skyline of the city ends up on one side of I-4. Mm-hmm. So, is, I mean, that's all in what you're talking about, right? Yeah, and I haven't seen the original design as well, but I've talked to some of our city fathers. And I recall after hearing the story about I-4, because it, it was of interest to me, uh, my office is in Paramore, okay? So I drive across Division Street regularly, I literally drive across Orange, an industrial district, a set of tracks, Division Street, I-4, to get to my office. We call those psychographic uh, barriers. Yeah, (laughs) Yes, there's a host of barriers. Uh Yeah. Almost like a wall. Yes. And so I understand from some of the local historians that that layout was very intentional. Mm -hmm. Okay. And there are some people who live on Division Street and apartments that remember when all of this was taking place. And some of those people served on the east side of the tracks, okay, literally. Now, I remember after I had discovered this, I talked to another fellow minister, and he said, oh, yeah, I remember. I was a kid when that was happening. And, yes, some of the Winter Park city fathers rose up and said, no, we're not bringing that through Winter Park. And so you look at that, and and I have no problem with people petitioning for their community. But when you look at the disparity between Winter Park and maybe Paramore at the time, it's it's clear that there there were certain motives and a certain amount of power that one community held that another community didn't possess, and all of those factors impact current relations. Okay, I'm involved with a couple clubs here in Orlando and I get the privilege of hanging out with some of the older black leaders and older white leaders. And there have been a few occasions where I've seen the two of them meet and then I'll have sidebar conversation with a leader saying, well, let me tell you how it was. Let me tell you why these clubs aren't Mm. together or you name it. And so there's clearly a history that has always plagued us to some degree. And I think that um, I think that we have an opportunity right now in Orlando with the type of unity that's emerging in the church across denominationally, even across socioeconomic lines, across cultural lines, across ethnic lines, to really put a stake in the ground for the kingdom to express Jesus's heart for unity. I to quite honestly express something about the nature of God, uh, you know, unity and diversity, diversity with unity. And so Orlando just has the potential for a lot of those things. Now, you you also add Pulse, the Pulse nightclub shooting into that mix, and that expands the conversation about diversity. All right. That was a very tragic uh, thing that took place. And that's like, I mean, that's literally like a mile from is it, is it more than a mile from your church? I mean, is at the it, time we were worshiping at Cayley Lake Cumwell Elementary, this is right. so it was yeah. less than a mile. Yeah, it was a quarter mile from St. Luke's downtown. Well, I mean, it was mm-hmm. right in between our churches. That's right, where we serve. And when that happened, uh, a dear friend of mine, Michael Graham, who's your colleague, 
and and myself along with a couple others gathered some ministers together and we prayed cross-denominationally at the YMCA and we said, what can we do? And a couple of us just went out downtown and just started investigating what's going on, praying for people, talking to people, getting to know what's going on, seeing if we can speak a word of comfort in the midst of that trauma. And we, what we discovered was that people just all over the continuum about the, about the LGBTQ plus discussion came out. And so we had a conversation with one lady and she would, she titled herself as an activist. She was a counselor dedicated to uh, activism for the LGBTQ plus community. And we said to her, Hey, we'd love to get to know you. Our church is a place where we, we want to be a place of solace for people who have experienced this tragedy. And she said, okay, that's wonderful. Then she, as the conversation closed, she said, now is this, are they going to hear the oppressive message there? And we were, we were, it kind of stymied us. We were like, well, no, we want to be a place of healing. And she said, no, but are they going to hear that oppressive message? And I said, okay, I think I know what you're saying. I said, well, I said, I don't like to pull bait and switch on people. I said, I'll, I'll be up front. Our, our worldviews are going to lead to different outcomes about sexual ethics. And she said, no, that's oppressive. How can you tell somebody that if they're gay that? And, and so, and we listened patiently because we wanted to learn. Our goal was to learn. And that gave us an understanding of the Pulse uh, incident. It gave us an understanding of how much people rooted uh, their identity in their sexual ethic. Okay. So now we know as part, part of being an image bearer, sexuality is a part of what it means to be human. But it's not the sum total of what it means to be human. I, we not understand the, it's that. Not the core it's, of what it means to be human, right? And yeah. so they, but there are people who really believe they're really convinced otherwise. Now you know we moved a few blocks down and spoke to a guy that worked for one of the local representatives, and he was quite a bit more open. He was curious to know what we believed, and he was willing to come to our service and have a conversation and exchange ideas. Then I know in my personal time, I, I've talked to people, I counsel and have friends, uh, family members who deal with sexual brokenness in that regard, as far as it relates to same-sex attraction or a history of it. And they will say, well, I want to know what God's design is, right? So Orlando consists of all of those kinds of people. And they're at various places on that continuum. And there might be, I might even need to expand that continuum. So when I talk about Orlando being this interesting place, this place full of promise, this place, place full of hope, a place searching for identity, it is so, it's expressed in the conversations around racial reconciliation, diversity, uh, uh, sexual ethics, socioeconomic disparities. I mean, there's all sorts of discussions that need to be had about employment and compensation in our city for it. And so, and Affordable people are housing. having that conversation, right? Yep. And the church is involved in that conversation. And the church is involved in bringing godly solutions to spaces where brokenness exists. All right. So I want, um, I don't want to set up any straw men here. I, I know well-meaning brothers and sisters in this city who would, who would, when we start talking about racial reconciliation and compensation and disparities, they would say that is a conversation for outside the church. Mm-hmm. And it's really, in its worst form, it's a Trojan horse for a liberal agenda coming Justin. inside the church. So I am in a conservative denomination. Okay. It is majority white. It is middle, middle class, upper middle class, wealthy. Okay. So we've done well over the years at reaching that population and listen, everybody needs Jesus. So praise God that we're able to reach people. But I think there's also some other interesting, um, if, if I may, uh, personality profiles about our denomination that, that we tend to be politi- politically conservative, not that that in and of itself is bad, but and uh, culturally conservative. And so you're filling all the blanks. So there's a certain worldview. There's a certain, um, there's a certain 
story that characterizes many of the people in our denomination. And so when you're not faced with or have to live and maybe live the experience that I have had or others like me, that it's just not on your radar to think about these things. All right. And anything that threatens your norm, your normal way of life or anything that questions it feels like a threat. So I want to show charity to people who fit that profile, who may think, oh, this is a liberal agenda. I can understand why people would feel that way to have this discussion about justice, to have the discussion about mercy, income, race, because in the broader culture, there is a there is a race baiting market, which, by the way, is not just a liberal thing. It's a conservative mm-hmm. thing. People say that talking about this is the problem. No, that's not. As my friend, uh, you know, Professor Dr. Swain would say, jumping in the opposite ditch is the problem. So to overindulge and and say that everything it races the cause of all the problems is inaccurate. To sit here and say that race relations, socioeconomic income equality, all kind of you know justice issues, in no way, shape, or form have anything to do with the problem is wrong too. It's equally wrong and reprehensible, to be quite honest with you. Okay, we have structural issues and we have behavioral issues. Okay, so I think what we need to do is do the hard work, do the spade work of understanding what the Bible says about these issues. First of all, does the Bible even say anything about it? Can we agree on that? And if the Bible, if the answer is yes, then both of us need to put down our swords and come to the middle and say, okay, Let's start seeing what the word of God says about this and not just, you know, um, offering our own incendiary thoughts about it. All right. Well, Justin, I'll be honest with you. I have not always been in this place. Okay, Uh, I I am the the son of the son and grandson of folks who are still alive that experienced some very difficult race relations here in America. Okay, and so that's Mm -hmm. part of my family story on both sides. My grandparents were immigrants from Jamaica and they did not have on many occasions a very welcoming. um, They didn't have a welcome committee waiting on them. Mm -hmm. My grandfather was told in this country because you're black and I'm white, I cannot have you working in a position of power. Okay, that Mm -hmm. story has remained a part of our family for years. Okay, on my mom's side, my family's from South Alabama. My grandparents came down and probably the third or so great migration, they came to Miami. Okay. You look at ancestry.com. It's clear. Okay. That some of the folks that, um, some folks in my family line were slaves and some were slave owners. Okay. So I've got this interesting history on both sides. Mm. All right. Now that causes me to have pay particular attention to issues of race, knowing that that's part of my own personal story. So I'm more sensitive to it. And I think that when you are in a communion that is majority white, you are more aware of certain things. Okay. And so for example, um, a lot of a lot of my colleagues would, would tell you, oh, well, you know, we're, you know, the color issue is not a thing for us. I mean, well, well, it doesn't have to be because everything is there's there's a great degree of uh, dominant cultural normativity. Right? Mm-hmm. You have you can opt out. Well, for me, when I walk in the room, there's uh, forty five thousand, uh, forty five thousand, forty five hundred teaching elders, most of whom are white, and then there's about fifty of us. Okay, in yeah. two thousand thirteen, I was the forty six ordained black teaching elder. In PCA history. And so I'm just aware of these things, whether I want to be or not. And so we do have a history in the PCA. Okay. During the civil rights movement, we were very silent when we started. There are founding fathers who are alive, who have recognized that we did not do a good job. We have overtures that we passed. We have overtures that created funds in order to get more uh, black teaching elders a part of our communion. And the history goes even further up. You mentioned the doctrine of the spirituality of the church. James Henley Thornwell was the architect of that, Mm -hmm. who helped found the Presbyterian Presbyterian Church of the Confederate States, the Southern Presbyterian Church at First Pres, uh, Augusta, Georgia. 
Okay. I've preached at that church twice, two or three times. <laughs> I've sat in the chair where the moderator who helped organize that denomination sat. Okay. At one point in time, blacks were not allowed in that sanctuary. So I think it's, 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 it's a, it's a very, um, it, it's a very redemptive thing to see blacks and non-whites preaching in that pulpit and to take a picture in that moderator's chair. So we do have that as part of our heritage. Okay. And that has had an impact on race relations and the diversity of our denomination historically. So you think about all these things and you could say it about a host of other denominations. Okay. It's not just a Presbyterian thing. Oh, not at all. Not at all. And so uh, basically what I call friends to do and people in this space to do is just a simple history lesson. Okay. We can't, it's not enough to just say, can we just move forward? Right. It's, it's a both and thing. Move forward from what to where, from what to what. All right. Nobody does history like that. All right. Nobody lives life like that. Uh, we, we live life constantly reflecting on what was. So, and that, that's wisdom. Wisdom comes from trial and error, right? So we, we know not to do this again because it didn't work out the last time we did it. Yeah, just move on. If you do that in a relationship, that's usually avoidance, no conflict avoidance and denial. Exactly. I mean, if I were to say that to my wife, hey, can we just move on? Mm-hmm. I don't want to talk about what I did that hurt your feelings or my sin against you. Mm-hmm. Let's just move on from that. And get back to like just normal. Well, normal, according to my understanding of normal and how I want her to respond with the pain of what I just said or did. Mm-hmm. So let's just move on is cover for something else. Absolutely. And, and can I, I love how you said, mm-hmm. you know, the dominant culture can opt out if we want. And That's so right. I'm a part of the dominant culture. Mm-hmm. I grew up, um, I don't mind saying I grew up going to First Pres before any black people went there. Mm-hmm. I was members of the country club of Orlando before black people were in. Um and and so I, I, it was it was not too long ago when I realized the ways that I was opting out, mm-hmm. and so what would, what would be, some of the mo- you know low hanging fruit, uh, some of the most basic things that you think would be helpful for dominant culture in Orlando to see, um, or to, to understand. You know, it doesn't mean we ha- everybody has to agree, but like to understand um, why opting out is not. An option. An option. <laughs> yeah. No, especially if you're a Christian. Okay. I, I would call you as a Christian to get in the game, if you will. Um, there, there are a number of things that we're seeing in broader, broader culture, different movements around justice, around equality that are healthy indicators of a problem. So, you know, I want to give credit where the culture is identifying or diagnosing issues. That's true for the church as well. But I think in the church, we've got to filter some of these solutions through the Bible, all right? Because we got to filter everything through the Bible, all right? So I would say to that, and some things can be a Trojan horse if we go about them the wrong way. But to just say wholesale, this whole discussion about uh, diversity, reconciliation, justice, is just just a liberal agenda. I would, I would challenge you, okay? Um, Carl Ellis, uh, uh, Dr. Carl Ellis, who was the second... Uh, black ordained teaching elder in the PCA's history, still alive, well-respected by many people here in our locale as well, authored the book Free at Last. And he did a seminar for us, and he put a, a picture of the United States on the screen. Okay, then the next slide was the South. The next slide was the South with red over it. Okay, then the next slide was the South with red and Bible Belt. And everybody was like, oh, of course, the South is the Bible Belt. Do you know what the next slide was? Jim Crow. All the non-white people in the room said, that's right. Mm-hmm. It was a it was an awakening for people that I love dearly that just said, I just, I didn't realize. I just so it's all about understanding each other's narratives, understanding each other's stories. Mm-hmm. I love that you had that experience. And I want you to, and I want to celebrate those good indicators of human flourishing, being able to be a part of um, in in influential spaces and 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 have opportunity at resource. I I I love that for you. What I want to do is see 
how a Christian with those opportunities leverages it for the kingdom, the relationship. Because I know that I'm privileged. I am, I have a graduate degree and I'm in a denomination that has, that's very, it's well-resourced. And I have a number of relationships that can land me a job in a moment's notice by God's grace, if something were to collapse on this side of things, but that's not the story for everybody. So the question I ask myself is what, how am I to steward that which God has entrusted to me? And I think the question that I would, I would, I would offer a prophet to my white brothers and sisters who are, who are a privileged space is how can you be a steward with all that God has given you? You're not evil because you have much. Now, if you got it evilly, you might need to reevaluate some things. But the question is, how do you turn it loose to bear fruit for the kingdom? And much of what I hope to see in this discussion is how do we promote human flourishing? How do we promote, in the first place, the good of our brothers and sisters in the kingdom? And how do we parlay that into evangelism? So the church has an opportunity with all the resources that we have to have a positive impact for the kingdom. And I think sometimes these discussions stop short of how can this uh, bring glory to God? Okay, now, and I'm not even just talking about, um, I'm not even talking about just doing good for Christian brothers and sisters. I'm simply saying, if you're driving down the street and you have it in your power, you have time, you're under no other exigent circumstances, and you see someone distressed, a little old lady on the side of the street, okay, Who's needing assistance? Are are you gonna stop? Are you gonna ask yourself, well, is she a believer? Does she share my political persuasion? Does she look like? Are you gonna do all those things before you stop to help her? I think not. Okay. <laughs> well, I think there's a level of individualism that per- pervades our Christianity here in America and in in, in a lot of our um, evangelical spaces. All right, we've got to we've got to contend with. Uh, the the uh, Matthew 23, when Jesus says, yeah, you you tied mint, dill, cumin. All right. But you neglect the weightier matters of the law. Mercy, justice. Hmm. Uh, OK, so mm-hmm. can we talk? Can, yeah. can we talk about what our actual propositional beliefs should look like in ethics? I, I remember the first time for me that I started to have this angst inside of me that there, I had some friends who were saying, listen, we preach the gospel in church and we don't get political. Don't get political. Yet those were the people who were the most pro-human, the most pro-life people I knew mm-hmm. and the most pro-Republican I knew. Mm-hmm. And so there was this dissonance between what they were saying, like, you know, the image of God, it, it affects the abortion issue, but not the race issue. And there was mm-hmm. an inconsistency that I couldn't get around. I had to either jettison both or embrace both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and, and for me, it's it's simple. I, I am pro-life all of life. Mm. I, I want to defend and and redeem, save as many unborn as I can, all right? But I also want to do something about the structures that help perpetuate the problem in the first place. And I think if we move the conversation to a both and and not an either or with regard to that social issue, man, we, we, we could see a revolution take place in the church. We could see something amazing happen. But the problem is we, we allow allegiance to a party or we allow allegiance to Caesar uh, to rule the day over allegiance to Christ. And, and that's sad. All right, Kate, I know this this would probably merit a whole podcast, but mm-hmm. could you, like Orlando specific, what would be some of those structures mm-hmm. that you're talking about? Because, it, it, again, a lot of us can opt out, and we don't see the structures that you're talking about. Yeah, there's, there's a—when you think about the issue structurally, you know, in our city, um, you can see how neighborhood formats, how redlining, how demographic realities express— structural injustice in our city. You know, historically, I've talked to some of the, some of our, again, city mothers and fathers, and they can recall days when their school system was desegregated and there were immediate responses to that. All right. So I'll, I'll, I'll add to this. Mm-hmm. I remember as a kid growing up hearing from the people when desegregation happened, um, I, I grew up with some older people in my life who said, yeah, we met in my home and three hours later, Lake Highland was formed. 
Like I'm not, I'm not saying that's a part of what they're doing now, but like that that that's a fact. I, I know the people who who pulled that together. My dad uh, had a career in banking here in Orlando with a very well known bank, and early on in his career in the in the early 70s, he was told you cannot give loans to certain people because of their color. And he really, to his credit, he fought against that as much as he could as a new you know young banker. But so I, I'm trying to be very specific yeah. where you're, I think, trying to be very charitable. Yeah. And and, and uh, Mr. Davis was also involved in uh, starting organizations that help promote black business. Yeah. So, again, when, when you think about what are responses, healthy responses to discriminatory behavior, I think of some of the things that Bob Davis did, your dad. Right? He, he just said, all right, well. If everyone's doing better, it, it works better for everybody. Mm-hmm. So he involved himself with uh, strengthening uh, black businesses. So that's not a that's not a liberal thing to me. To me, that that's a Christian thing. Mm-hmm. That's a a man with resources, a man with influence, seeing that something is wrong and it's having an adverse impact on people, and I can do something about it. I think of uh, uh, the proverb that says, "Do not withhold from a man when it's in your power to give." All right, this is what we're about as Christians. We want to promote. Uh, human flourishing in the name of Jesus, unashamedly. Okay. And so um, you think about uh, barriers with real estate, with wealth uh, procurement. And if we see structures that are in place and we can do something about it, and we are of uh, people who have uh, influence to get things done, I think there's a clear call to do something about it because the God we serve, all right, is a just God. He's also merciful. He, he doesn't judge any of us. All right. Can, can we preach for a second? According to our sin. For if he did, who of us could stand before him? Right. So we have that salvific mercy. But then the Bible also calls us to do right by people. All right. There's a, a song that we sing in our church. I'm going to stay on the battlefield for my Lord till I die. And then the next line is, I'm going to treat everybody right until I die. Everybody, whether they're a Christian or not. So there's righteousness in the forensic sense that God has satisfied the righteous uh, requirement of the law so that anybody who believes in Jesus, we get in. But then God also calls us to do right, to judge correctly uh, according to our neighbor, right? To not have unbalanced scales, to be kind to the stranger, to be kind to the sojourner. Why? Because you were once a stranger. You were once a sojourner. So these are just basic Love your neighbor principles. Okay. And so we have opportunities to um, realize that here in our city. I think of the work that's happening with Lyft and the West Lakes community. What we're doing is uh, Christians have gotten together with public, private interest, and they've developed this multi, uh, this uh, multi economic uh, living space. Um, they, it, it was uh, an idea adopted from, East Lake in Atlanta, and of course, Bob Lupton, who authored um, Toxic Charities, involved in that. And I heard him speaking at the grand opening or one of the grand openings. And so the Christians in the uh, business world in Orlando have really gotten behind doing something about the living conditions of our community. Uh, and that, to me, those are clear ways where racial reconciliation, okay, socioeconomic uh, multi-socioeconomic collaboration can have an impact for good in our city. All right. And what ends up happening is lives are changed in the name of Jesus and doors are open to share the gospel and everybody is doing better. Our community is doing better. And and it's not a paternalistic approach either because they're, they've gone and they've done the spade work of asking the community, what are your concerns and how can we serve you? Now, in any of these things, of course, there's going to be shortcomings. But as we continue to persevere in them, we get better at it. Those are just a few examples of good that has happened in our city. And there's there's a whole lot more. There are Christians meeting up to talk about income uh, concerns in our city. These are young Christians who are Bible believing. They are um, apostle creed affirming, Nicene creed affirming Christians that saying, Hey, we love Jesus. We love the word of God and we want to love our neighbor and love them well. 
This is what I so appreciate about you and why you were on the very short list of people we knew we wanted to have on the show because because you're a thought leader in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like everything you're, you're talking about, they're just implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and, and it's very well thought through. You have a unique ability to bridge cultures that, that everybody doesn't have. It's just a gift God has given mm-hmm. you, um, and, and and it makes sense that you would— uh, that you would pastor a unique uh, multi-ethnic church in the heart of our city. And so I want to, before we finish, I want you to talk a little bit about that. What is, if I walk into Christ United Fellowship Church in Lake Como Elementary School, it, like what does it feel like? What would I expect? Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, well, it's, it's, a, it, it's a beautiful body, Okay. Sometimes I walk in and I'm surprised when, when we talk about cross-cultural ministry and we talk about multi-ethnic ministry, typically in our mind, it ends up being black and white. But when you come to CUF, you will see black people, all of whom are not American blacks. There's Caribbean, there's African first generation people. Okay. There's South American. We have people from all over the Latino diaspora from South America, from the, uh, Latino Caribbean community. And so it's beautiful. And those things matter. They, they are very much nuanced. And even the dialects, the different words that uh, are employed in, in their own settings. And so we have come to the point where some of our songs are in Spanish. We're looking for more songs to do in Spanish. So we'll sing a verse in Spanish, a verse in English. And recently we opened up the service, our, our song set in Creole. And I I think what ends up happening, Jim, is when people who are in the congregation whose heart language is being expressed from the front, from leadership, uh, experience that, they get a sense that there's a place for them in God's kingdom. Now, we know that we can't do it every week. Our shared language is English. But and as often as we can and as we are able, we do it to communicate something about our beliefs about our triune king. One God, three distinct persons, three distinct persons, one God. Okay, and we try to reflect that in our worship. And so I have been personally challenged as a pastor to grow in my understanding of other cultures through food. And I preach from the pulpit. I say, listen. When we talk about hospitality, I love pernil, okay, which is is a roast pork shoulder. And 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 if you want me to come over and sample, I'd be glad to do it. Okay, <laughs> I love mofongo. I love I love um, some griot, some griot, which is fried pork. All right, and so in uh, Haiti, in Haitian, um, in Creole, excuse me. So all of those things are making our body a more welcoming place. Mm. And in fact, one of the top, maybe the top comment we get from visitors is how welcoming our body is. It's not my preaching. And second is the music. Not only do we have a reflection of different people, uh, we also reflect diversity in our music. We have a gospel organ. We have a Hammond B3 organ. So we sing gospel songs. We sing CCM. We sing traditional hymns. All right. So praise songs. So there's there's an assortment of musical genres that are expressed. And it's not it's not this all over the place. Smorgasbord. It's very thought out. You get the sense that they put some thought into it. Uh, mood with genre, mood, um, you know, lyrics, all of those things. And so those things are happening. And we have people in different spaces in leadership. OK, we have lay leaders that are from all sorts of backgrounds, all right, men and women. And so we highlight those things in our congregation uh, so that it will send a signal to people who are coming that there is a place here for you. It may not, it's not the perfect place, but there's a place for you at the table in God's kingdom. Well, you've downplayed your preaching a little bit. I, I am on record with my wife as saying there are very few people I could sit under for the rest of my life and sit under their teaching. And, and you're one of you're on um, a short list. So I'm I, your preaching is, is not hurting anything over there either. 
Um, all right. Where, what's your website and what time do you all worship? Yeah, yeah. Uh, ChristUnitedFellowship.com. We worship on Sunday mornings at 1015 a.m. Uh, I guess, well, Sunday morning is a.m., right? <laughs> just, just in case. <laughs> Not your a.m., my a.m. All right. And so we worship on Sunday mornings, 1015 at Lake Como School. It's K through 8. It's right at the intersection. Okay, I, I keep calling it elementary. That's right. Mm-hmm. It's a K through 8. That's right. Yeah, at the intersection of Gore and Bumby, just south of the 408. And um, and while you're at it, too, I think one of the resources that would no. be helpful is a repentance project. That's something that hmm. uh, we've been involved with, uh, me and, and some other local leaders here, where we've studied the legacy of slavery in America from a Christian perspective and investigated how, what kind of response can the church have to it? Um, I think of dear friends in town like Ted Haddock with the Haddock Family Foundation who are involved with it, Andy Crouch, Catherine Crouch. And so we have a groundswell of people in Orlando who are very much interested in seeing the gospel brought to bear on these issues that keep us divided. And those are conversations that we have at our church regularly. They're not the conversation that we have every week, but they're certainly, we're certainly not afraid of the conversation. And that's one of the other things that you'll find at our church. There's a group of people who say, well, if something's going on, well, let's see what the word of God has to say about it. Well, Mike, I really can't thank you enough for all that you do. Um, for the kingdom, for the city, for taking your time to spend with us today. I really appreciate it. Well, it was such an honor to be here with you and Justin, Jim. Thank you so much, brother. God bless you, man. You too. Thanks so much for listening to As in Heaven. For more information on the mission of this podcast, including supplementary blog posts about the history and culture of Orlando, go to asinheaven.com. That's A-S-I-N-H-V-N.com. If you like this episode, please take a second to give us a five-star rating on iTunes, which helps a ton. You can do that right from the Apple Podcasts app if you happen to be listening there. As in Heaven is recorded in-house at Orlando Grace Church. For more information on Orlando Grace Church, go to orlandograce.org. Thanks again for listening.